Hey, you are listening to a Sunday morning sermon from Seven Mile Road. We are a gospel-centered church just north of Boston, Mass. To learn more about who we are and what we are going for together, just go to sevenmilemelrose.com. So I don't know if you know, if you have any friends who are uh, not uh, homegrown Bostonians, anyone who's from someplace else. You may get to chat with them from time to time, and they're reminiscing about their former hometown where traffic was better, where you could get so much more house for so much less money, where uh, it was such a different environment cuisine-wise or the sports teams, these types of things, and they reflect f- fondly back on their hometown. I don't know if, you've, uh, if you know Dan Coe, one of the pastors at uh, our Malden Church, Uh, You probably won't talk to him for more than 10 minutes without hearing that he is from Chicago and loves Chicago and loves Chicago sports teams and uh, a lot of things about Chicago, as well as Boston, but uh, he has some fond memories of Chicago that come up. Uh, You can uh, chat with Chris Soria from time to time, and you'll hear some interesting connections about Kentucky uh, from time to time uh, that are a little different than his life and his setting here. Uh, I'm from Detroit originally, and uh, love to love to talk about some differences there and some of our our fine cuisine of Detroit, like the Coney Dog, um, that's covered in chili and and coleslaw. Uh, a little perfection on the New York Coney Dog, but uh, you know that's for another time. As you have those hometown memories, those distinctions, you have a certain view of the world, how it should work, what your perspective is on how things work. And we as Bostonians, whether you're a townie, or whether you're here to stay, or whether you're just passing through and you've come to absorb the Bostonian culture, you start to understand that there are differences. There's ways that Bostonians view the world, ways that things fit together, things that you like, things that you tend to not like and move away from. Just think about some of these things that are just part of the, the psyche of a Bostonian. No matter how many months you've been here or years, Uh, This idea that New York City is like somehow the South, right? That starts to become ingrained after a while, like way down South in New York City and how they do things. Or, uh, you know, that funny little bun that you can start to get used to for a hot dog. You ever seen that? Like it has like, looks like two pieces of Wonder Bread kind of brought together and you slice it and then a hot dog goes in that. Like true Bostonians appreciate that thing and they think it's like the only way to have a hot dog. And then you buy one and you're like, what is this? I don't understand what this hot dog bun is. You're you're from anywhere else. You're very thrown off by it. Uh, Or just the idea that, you know, this is the the myth that's probably hardest for Bostonians to take is this idea that there's really not a Duncan on every street corner in America. It's it's just really not true, um, but becomes really part of your life uh, as a Bostonian. Now, all of those are pretty pretty silly in some ways, and, and probably most of us have gotten out enough to know some of those things aren't true. But uh, more seriously, we understand that there are certain idols or sins or perspectives that are more incumbent or more likely for us as Bostonians than, uh, than for us as maybe other parts of the country and the things that we might struggle with. So we as a church have intentionally spent effort to think about what are the idols, what are the sins, what are the concerns and weights that sit on us specifically as Bostonians who live and move in this particular space in the world and our culture and our sensitivities and needs that we need to touch on. And from those, we try to be committed to speak against those, to help people understand what, is, what are you hearing every day in your normal life that is pulling you away from what the Bible teaches and what Jesus would have you to know. 
that's going to sound a little different than if we were located in Iowa or South, uh, South Carolina or Southern California. But we need to hear what that is for us as Bostonians in our own hometown. In our text today, uh, we look at what can be an ultimate mistake. An ultimate mistake that's based on one's hometown or proximity. So we use hometown as kind of a metaphor to describe this closeness to something. Right? We have that affinity, we have that love, that connection with a place, and that's our hometown. Similarly, we're going to see in the story that we'll read through Luke together, that actually Jesus' hometown of Nazareth, the people there, because of their proximity, because of their affinity of their place, because of their closeness to what Jesus was doing, they made a significant gospel mistake. They have caused their location to bleed into their thinking so much that they made a serious and ultimate gospel mistake. So as we work through our text together, we're going to see one big idea that we're going for together today to understand. And the big idea for today is to guard yourself from making a hometown gospel mistake. And we're going to make make this clear, explain exactly what we're going for there. But these words kind of come out of the text. So we want to make sure that we're, we're being close to what the words are in the exact text and then explain them to us so that we can learn from them together. So we want to guard ourselves from this mistake that we've seen. Or if I said it differently to kind of just explain what I mean by this hometown gospel mistake, it's that don't be so near to the gospel, but mistakenly never really embrace it. Don't be so near to the gospel that you somehow mistakenly never embrace it. So to understand this critical, uh, critical lesson today from our text, we're going to spend some time understanding what the scene of the story was that we're looking at today. So I'm going to just walk kind of verse by verse. We've got about three sections we'll look at. So you can just kind of follow along in your Bible. We'll have it up on the screen as well. Understand what the story is, and then we'll spend a little bit of time at the end talking about what's the meaning. What do we learn from this together? So I said we're in Luke chapter 4. We're going to start working from verse 16 in the text. And the first section is really about the teaching of Jesus. This is a really cool scene where we get to see Jesus preaching. Jesus takes over the opportunity to speak. And he, as the God-man, came into the, the synagogue space, and he preaches the word of God. Text says, and he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, lest we miss that point. So Nazareth was where Jesus was brought up, as the text says. So if you remember, he was born in Bethlehem. We love that from the Luke 2 story and much of what we remember at Christmas. He was consecrated in Jerusalem, a short distance away from uh, Jerusalem, where he was circumcised and the sacrifices were given in consecration. We spent some time talking about that as well. Then he goes back from Jerusalem, back to the, the home of Bethlehem, not very far away. This is where the Magi come and visit him from the east while he's back in his home in Bethlehem. You remember that story that we also usually hear in uh, the Christmas story. The Magi come to visit them in the house and they hear of Herod and Herod is, is worried about them. So then they're warned, Joseph is warned in a dream to flee with Mary and Jesus down to Egypt. And so Mary and Joseph and Jesus go down to Egypt for a period of time, a few years most likely. And after that, Herod has died. God again speaks to Joseph and tells him, come back. As Joseph is coming back, he learns about the political situation. And he says, you know what? I'm not going back to Jerusalem. I'm not going back to Bethlehem. I'm going back to Nazareth. And that's why we say that Jesus was, was raised in Nazareth. He spent really all of his formative years, all through his kind of growing up years as a child, all throughout his teenage years and into his early adulthood in the city of Nazareth, more in the north, in the, in the region of Galilee, up kind of like near the Sea of Galilee of sorts. So that's why it says he is 
brought up in Nazareth, and would be like anyone who was born in one place and then spent your whole life somewhere else. You probably see your hometown as the place where you spent your life growing up, less not really that place where you were exactly born. So that's why he sees his hometown as Nazareth. Then it tells us in the text, as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. So this is Jesus' habit. He went to the place where God's word was heard on the day when it was designed to come and worship the Lord and spend time with others who were following Jesus. So he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath. And then we see what he did. He had a, had a role in the, in the synagogue function that was happening, the service there. Uh, it says, and he stood up and he read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. So let's hear what's happening here. So Jesus is called upon to speak in this uh, synagogue service is clearly what's happening. Somewhere in between those lines, that, that must have happened. Whether it was planned or it was spontaneous, we don't know. But somehow Jesus is now preaching in this service. As he comes into it, he stands up and he's given a scroll. Uh, assumedly he asked for this one, but you never know. Handed him the Isaiah scroll. Pretty big one usually. He opens that scroll up. And he begins to read from it. And here are what the words are that, that Jesus reads. Pastor Matt read it at the beginning of our service today. So we hear it. Here are the words from the text. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. And he has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind. To set at liberty those who are oppressed. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. These words are taken, uh, as we mentioned, directly out of Isaiah chapter 61, uh, verses 1 and 2. And he also adds in a little piece from Isaiah 58, point, uh, 58, verse 6. And so likely what he was doing is he read probably a larger section. He didn't just like read these few words. He probably read a few chapters together. But these were the significant words of his sermon that he put together and highlighted these specific words in there. The crux of Jesus' teaching is really coming out then in the, in the next slide I think we have that he begins to talk about himself as the fulfillment of this Old Testament teaching. So as he reads these verses from Isaiah, uh, he talks about being anointed by the Holy Spirit to preach, and there's so many implications that come from that for needy people that Jesus would serve. Then in verse 20 it says he rolled, uh, rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and he sat down. And we can hear that and think that's like the mic drop moment. Like he went, all right, there it is. I read it. Here I am going on. But actually what's happening here is he stood for the reading of God's word as we do as our custom and a similar part of God's word. But then he did this really cool thing that I'm kind of interested in bringing back in, which is he sat down to give his sermon. So, you know, I could see definitely some selling points and trying that out, but uh, a little different for us. This is where he actually digs into his part. So he got up, he read the word of God standing, everybody's standing, everybody's hearing it. And then he goes and he sits down and now he's going to explain what God's word is saying. So this is what he does. So he begins to talk about it and he says, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. I can't even imagine that. He's reading the words of God and he's saying, this just happened, folks. Here's what you're seeing. I'm the fulfillment of what Isaiah was talking about. I'm the long-awaited servant that you've been looking for from the book of Isaiah. This is me. You can imagine people in a room when that kind of statement is made from the guy who's speaking at the front. That's the setting here. Jesus is speaking these words to a synagogue full of people ready to hear just your regular old everyday sermon that you hear week after week. And this guy says, yeah, that part in Isaiah, that's me. I did that. So we look at the next slide, we start to see the reaction that comes from this. And this tells us a little bit about the mission of Jesus and what he's like in verses 22 through 27. 
we get a sense of how he, he works through this. It says here, as he spoke, uh, all that heard him, they were speaking well of him. I don't know if that means they turn to their neighbor and they start whispering, going, can you believe this guy? This is something. What is he saying? They're hearing the gracious words that are coming out of his mouth. And they're saying to each other, wait, 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 wait. Isn't, isn't this Joseph's son? Don't, don't we know this guy? Uh, they're thinking to themselves, okay, this is, you know, seriously uh, someone that we need to pay attention to. The text said just before that everyone's eyes were fixed on him. They were trying to really wonder where he's going to go next in this sermon. As they marveled and they had kind of disbelief about this being Joseph's son, it's, it's kind of akin to when we think, you know, maybe you know somebody when they were really young and then you start to see them as they grow older. I know we, we tend to experience that more as we, we age in time. We're like, I remember when you were, were so big and you were so young, right? You were my paper boy or, oh, you used to babysit for us or you used to wash the car or whatever, these different aspects, and you relate that. That's the feeling they have with Jesus here. Don't we know this guy? Didn't he play soccer or was part of the band or something growing up? And now he's here standing in the synagogue telling us, I'm the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy? Who is this guy? How do you deal with that? Jesus senses that. He perceives this reaction of his hometown and how they would see this. And he gives two proverbs here in, uh, that come out. Two words of, uh, these aren't from the book of Proverbs. These are really just general truths or advice that would be present from the day. So in verse 23, he gives the first one. Uh, when he says, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. So the idea is, okay, we know who you were, Jesus. You're Joseph's son. We've all seen you running around town. We've seen you grow up. Now you're saying that you're the fulfillment of Isaiah? Like, we're going to need to see something. So, like, if you want me to take that medication, how about I see you take it first? That's how much doubt I have about your work in this. His, his audience knows him too well to believe all of the words that are coming out of his mouth on this particular Sabbath. So he quotes that proverb and says that's kind of where they're thinking of. The crowd kind of comes back with the idea, what we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. That's the people's expectation. Jesus had just performed some, some great work in Capernaum. Uh, Luke has kind of reordered a little bit of the, uh, the text here to bring this particular story to the forefront in his gospel. But if we read along in Matthew and in Mark, we can see the ordering being slightly different here. And we understand chronologically, Jesus had just done some really cool things in Capernaum. And now he came back to his hometown in Nazareth for this particular scene. So what that tells us here is that the people are paying attention. They know what Jesus has been up to. And they want to see Jesus do the similar kinds of miracles and great work that he did in a nearby town of Capernaum. Well, do it here in your hometown. Show us that that son of Joseph can really do all these cool things that you're talking about, that we should really take you seriously. And then Jesus answers again with another proverb. And this time he says, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. And this is really the crux of the message. And so we want to un unpack this particular proverb that he's highlighting here. The point of this proverb is that basically the prophet's own people often have the most doubts about them. Or those closest to the truth tellers have the hardest time believing them. Right? This has been true throughout Israel's history as the prophets that God would send to his people and call them back to believe his word, the people would doubt. They would look for signs. They would want to see great things, whether it be from the hand of Moses or whether it be any of their prophets throughout history from Samuel on forward through the latter prophets. They wanted a sign. They wanted proof that this person was someone they could trust and believe. And the more they knew them, the more they knew about what they were like and the closer they might be to them, the less they believed them. 
it's kind of human nature in some ways, right? You kind of see this probably in your own family. There's kind of some aunts and uncles or maybe somebody who knew you when you were really young. And then now you're like a professional and all grown up. And they still kind of treat you like you're this little, little dumb kid who didn't know anything, right? You, we've had that feeling. That's a sense that does come out from human nature. But the problem is, is when you don't understand the seriousness of the person who's speaking and the truth of the message that they're giving you. So even if you were some small kid, depending on the importance of the message that you're conveying, people would need to listen to you. Now ratchet that up to the high degree to think about where Jesus is coming from. Yes, they'd seen Jesus grow up. He's lived a perfect life. He's never sinned as a child. And so the idea that they wouldn't receive Jesus' message just because they knew him when he was young is a serious and costly error on their part. That's the hometown mistake that we see laid out for them. So we get to understand a little bit more about what Jesus' mission is going to be because of the setting, because of how he answers the Proverbs, uh, the, with the two Proverbs. So in this uh, slide, we start to see what he tells them. He's going to explain to them how he's going to work, how he's going to function as a minister in the nation of Israel and what he's going to do. So in that, that next verse, he talks about, but in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah. So Jesus is going to go to illustrate his point of how he's going to work from two great prophets of Israel, arguably the greatest prophets of the nation of Israel, with Elijah and Elisha. We see him say, But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land, and Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. So we go back to 1 Kings here, and we start to hear about two, two prophets. One is Elijah from 1 Kings. The other is his successor, Elisha, in 2 Kings. So during this phase of Israel's history, it was a time of really the darkest point of the divided kingdom after Israel had been split into a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. During this time, though, Israel had its probably greatest political time. They were the wealthiest they had ever been. They had the strongest military they had ever been. They built up all these great nations uh, that we would look at, uh, great cities and, and citadels that were built for the northern kingdom of Israel during this reign. But the biblical text doesn't tell us much about that. The biblical text tells us, yeah, yeah, this evil king Omri and this evil king Ahab, they came to power. And then the story of the Bible focuses in on this little, strange little prophet named Elijah. And that's where all these great things are happening out in society, in the world of Israel, if you will, that we would normally be impressed with, their military, their economics, their great politics. But the biblical story focuses in on a prophet. And he tells us that really those kings are not to be trusted. They're quite corrupt. They're evil. And during that time, Elijah spends all of his ministry showing off with amazing miracles and teaching and preaching to the people that they need to return to God. And the people typically don't respond. There's a couple of times where they do, but more or less, that's where the nation is at. And then we have this scene early on in Elijah's ministry where basically God has shut up the heavens so there's no rain. And this causes great famine in the land. And the people are hungry and starving in many cases in Israel as it's lasted for so long. But during this period of time, Elijah goes to a Gentile village near Sidon, uh, to a place, a small town called Zarephath, and there he does a miracle to provide for a widow and her son. In a time of great starving, he finds a Gentile, a, a seemingly person that the Old Testament Jews would not have spent their time on and didn't think that they cared about as, as part of God's people. That's who the prophet goes and ministers to, because she has great faith. 
She follows through with making Elijah a meal, even though she has very little left for her and her son. And Elijah performs a miracle so that she can continue to have the food that she needs for her and her son because of her generosity and her faith at the word of Elijah told her. So that's a story of where the Gentile, someone who is faith-filled, is able to be allowed the opportunity to be close to God and know what Jesus has brought to them. And really, the next story is the same here. Uh, actually, go back to the, the second half of that slide. We hear the second prophet of Elisha. And Elisha is from 2 Kings, the successor of Elijah. You've got the names being really close together, so it's hard to keep track, to be honest. But Elisha in 2 Kings performs a similar miracle. There's a lot of lepers in Israel during this period of time. Leprosy was far running as a, as a skin disease and had a lot of impact on the people. And yet, during this period of time, we're told that Elisha performs a miracle for Naaman, a pagan Syrian general who comes into the nation of Israel. That's who Elisha heals. We have no record of him healing other lepers in Israel who were good Jews, who loved God, or were a part of that, or seemingly part of his society. No, we see the spirit of looking for anyone who has faith. No matter their background, no matter where they're from, no matter what they've done, as clearly Naaman, this, this uh, Syrian general, was, was quite a hard and evil man in many ways. And yet, at this time, he showed humility and faith and turned to God. And in that, Elisha shows him this healing. So we see a, a different turn in Jesus' ministry. Rather than just focusing on his hometown, because they're close to Jesus, because they're the people who knew him, that they would somehow get this special preferential treatment. No, Jesus' ministry is marked by anybody who is faith-filled. Jesus' message and mission was one of unexpected exclusiveness, inclusiveness, excuse me, an expansive gospel. We talk about it uh, in the Luke series, a gospel bigger than anybody imagined. This is bigger than they imagined. It's going to other people. But there was this singular exclusive element, the requirement of faith in Jesus alone. Wherever that was seen, and we'll see this throughout the book of Luke, whoever the person, whatever the background, whatever the nationality, whatever experiences they've had, if they turn to Jesus in faith, they're accepted. That's the, the start to see this in the story of Jesus and where he turns. So let's see our, our last section then in verses 28 through 30. And we see in these verses the people's assessment of Jesus. So here we see uh, that when the people heard these things, so they're in the synagogue, Jesus has said all this. He's told in the Proverbs. They can't believe this guy is doing this. The people heard these things all in the synagogue. They were filled with wrath. They were really mad now when they've heard this. They understood that story. Sometimes we think Jesus says these words and like nobody else is following along. Maybe we're getting more out of it than the original people did. No, no, no. They knew the story from Elijah. They knew the story from Elisha. And they understood what he was saying. He was saying, hey, it doesn't matter that all of you are from my hometown or a bunch of good Jews. I'm looking for anybody who has faith, even if they're Gentiles. And that made them mad. And so they all got up from the synagogue and they drove Jesus out of town. And they brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built. And so they could throw him down the cliffs. So we have a real interesting scene here that happens. Basically, the, the crowd is worked up. They're ready to seize Jesus. They push him out all the way towards an edge of the cliff to kill him. We can see how people have assessed, will assess Jesus throughout his life and ministry and, and continuing today. There's this uh, animosity. There's this anxiety that what he says is true. This really upsets my life and my world. I don't know if I can believe this. And you see that frustration and anger on these people, and it's foreshadowed, as we'll see it throughout the gospel. And they bring Jesus all the way to the point of a cliff to push him over it. 
But God is in control. This wasn't the time for Jesus' life to end. He had much more to accomplish in his ministry. So we see at the end these amazing words and from verse 30. But passing through their midst, he went away. So he basically is on this edge of the cliff where the crowd is ready to just push him off. And here Jesus just walks right through the middle of the crowd and goes on his way. An amazing miracle of Jesus. To see in many ways the foreshadow of the triumph that we would see from Jesus throughout his life. That he would only give up his life when it was the appointed time of the Father. When it was time to care for us. And throughout that, the miraculous abilities of Jesus would be seen. And that final triumph of the resurrection is foreshadowed in the way that Jesus here can't be touched by death. In fact, he can pass right through the very crowd that was at arms to mob violence kill him at this point at the cliff. So that's where the, the people are, are with us. So you have the scene. Hopefully you've got a good sense of what's happening here in the story. We want to get to then what's the meaning of this? Okay, it's a, it may be an interesting story, some elements you may have not heard before. What's the meaning? Why do we care about this story? We get, come back to our key element that we're focusing on today. Don't be near the gospel, but mistakenly not really embrace it. We see from this that there are several causes that can have us have this mistake. So I want to talk through those briefly with you. What are the causes of the mistake, of, of this hometown gospel mistake? Well, first of all, there could be familiarity. So you could have been around the church and the teachings of Jesus. Maybe your mom or dad or your, your spouse are strong believers who have shared a lot with you. If you say to yourself, I know all about the gospel, but I still have my doubts or I'm not fully convinced, then you're running the risk of, a home, of making a hometown gospel mistake. The teachings of Jesus come down to whole faith action of your mind, your emotions, and your will, and grabbing hold of Jesus as you know him and as your only hope for this life and the life to come. So the people of Nazareth knew that what Jesus was like, and you might also know a bit of what Jesus is like from what other Christians or even what you have learned from the teachings of Jesus. But sometimes we think of that as if Jesus is, is just familiar or can be domesticated in some way. But Jesus and the power of his teachings cannot be contained so passively. They're wild and far-reaching, and they require each of us to personally know and embrace Jesus as the Son of God who takes away the sins of the world, including our own. So don't let familiarity with these things stop you from actually going to the point of believing in Jesus. Secondly, there's a sense of entitlement sometimes. We see this in the story of Nazareth, right? The city seemed to have felt that this was their, their town's son. If anybody was going to be benefiting from him, it wasn't going to be Capernaum. It was going to be Nazareth. They deserved the benefits of Jesus because of who they were as the citizens of Nazareth. We too can fall prey to this tendency and make a hometown gospel mistake. If we lose sight of our own personal neediness and our utter unworthiness of God's grace, for our terrible sinfulness, we can lean towards entitlement. We may point to our, our general moral living as the reason that we live a good life, or, and we can contrast that with others. We may think we're smarter. Look, I've accepted Jesus' teachings. I've found it easy to come to Jesus. How about these other people? But don't miss this. Any of us who have received the grace of God to be here on this Sunday... To hear the word of God, and if blessed by the ability to hear and believe the truth of the gospel in faith, it's entirely God's doing. We're, in, we're not entitled to anything apart from hell as the deserved death sentence for our sins. 
but a God who is rich in mercy and lavishes his grace upon us so that we can hear and believe. If we can never lose sight of this condition that we've had before we've known Christ and what we would be apart from Christ every day of our lives. If we stop understanding the role that trusting Christ has for us, then we are completely, utterly helpless and completely unworthy. And lastly, the cause of this mistake ultimately comes down to pride. Um, At its core, not holding to the gospel at some level comes to a question of pride in our lives, typically. We either have a self-reliance on ourselves, thinking we can figure it out. I'm not that bad. I can sort out my own problems. Or we think that we get to be the ones that judge the criteria. We decide what makes the most logical sense. We will decide if the miracles are right. We will decide if the Bible can be trusted because we're the ultimate authority. All of these things reek of pride in ourselves that we cannot look to anything else other than ourselves to be the definitive authority on what's true and what should be believed. In these instances, our own pride often keeps us from realizing the need we have for Jesus or the acknowledgement that we're dependent on God's grace to save us and not ourselves. So each of these causes of hometownness or closeness to the gospel uh, causes within us a need to not be like Nazareth, but instead turn unmistakably toward Jesus who's described in this ministry. So maybe you have someone living in your home or a good friend or a family member who, has, who knows and loves Jesus. You may have benefited from this relationship or have heard of Jesus' life and message from them. But I want to make clear the opportunity to respond is now. It doesn't mean that this continues on forever. We see in the ministry of Jesus that this was his only time here in the city of Nazareth. He comes, he presents this, this is how the people react, and Jesus moves on in his ministry. That's not to say that there's not more opportunities, as almost all of us would attest to God's patience and mercy, that God gives us multiple exposures, multiple attempts, multiple friends to share God's word. But at some point, that opportunity is missed. At some point, the mistake is made, and we move on from what God has offered to us. So it's very important that we grasp the remedy that we need for this hometown gospel mistake. And we see that we never can lose sight of the good news that Jesus has come to save you that he really knew who you are, and he really came to save you. So for those who haven't yet fully trusted Christ as their Savior and Lord, today is the opportunity. God's been gracious to bring you here. God's been gracious to share his word to you and maybe have someone in your life who's living it and telling you about it. Now is the time when you can confess your sins, knowing that you've badly broken God's laws and require that eternal death sentence. But God the Father sent Jesus to be a substitute for us, one who would take our place and one who would bear that penalty and exchange for us life instead of death. So that's our opportunity to believe, and I I ask all of us who have not done that to consider that today and see is that where you're at in needing to finally embrace the message that you've heard of Jesus. And for Christians, we need need to be reminded of the same remedy. Uh, Or we can become some of the worst people to be around if we forget this. We can, we can be worse uh, than a person who has not been saved by many means because we point to our own arrogance, our own accomplishments. Imagine how hard of a person that is to live with. We begin to think that we've been smart enough and we've been good enough to somehow deserve God. If that's our tendency and we go that direction, we, inv- we infect our marriages, our schools, our workplaces, and this church with that mentality because we've lost sight of how needy we were of God 
to reach into our lives. And as we keep that central and focused in mind, then we're not misguided in our love of Jesus and our need for him. So then as we understand the mercy and grace that we've received, we should then extend mercy and grace all the more to the others around us and in our lives. And I just ask that God would give us people who would finally embrace the gospel that they've been so near for so long, and also reminding all of us, of we who have believed, that that is what we need, to remember the grace and mercy that we've been shown, to be able to show that to others.